0: I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the second season of Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. Season two is focused on sustainable entrepreneurship, and today I sit down with Tim Brown, co-founder of the breakout brand Allbirds, to discuss his decision to not only adopt wool, a naturally sustainable fiber, but to register his global shoe brand as a B Corporation, and to hear why just getting a little bit better every day continues to be his mantra for sustainable success.
1: This was actually about a revolution in sustainable manufacturing and a category in, in fashion and footwear that had an enormous problem to solve. And I think we were hugely energized by that challenge and very, very quickly decided we were going to take a crack at it. The idea that we'd architected a supply chain that could have real impact, not just because that could build a big business, but because we knew we needed to build a big business to have the type of impact we wanted with the materials that we were going to use. So here's
0: my conversation with Tim Brown to learn what it really takes to build a global, sustainable fashion business from scratch. Mr. Tim Brown, welcome to London. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for the second series of Drive. Um, This series is all about people building businesses who have the drive and stamina to create big things with big impact. And you are certainly a very good example of that. And this series in particular is focused on people building sustainable businesses, sustainable fashion businesses. But before we get into the kind of origin story of all birds I wanted to learn a little bit about you first and a bit about your background and what were you like growing up what were the things that you were passionate about what were the things that drove you
1: well gosh um well thanks for having us this is great um it's great to be here i i i was actually born in in, in London okay um my father was English my mom was a kiwi and we moved to New zealand when i was when I was very young three or four and my father was—he um, worked in the not-for-profit sector. Okay. Uh, he worked for the Cancer Society, Bernardo's United Nations, um, one of their development programs in New Zealand. And my mum was a nurse. And I went to school, and um, you know, I—I I love school. Uh, I, I, you know, very quickly gravitated to uh, the creative parts of, of of school and design in particular. Okay. Um, always imagined that I would be an architect and then, you know, had a love affair with, with sport and specifically football. Like what kind of football is football in the round ball, the, the global, round ball global yeah. game. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, and I, and I fell in love with that too. And, and those two kind of, th- um, uh, things, the, the school and, and, the creative part of school and, and, the, the sport of football shaped kind of my life growing up for the most part. And then
0: how did that all lead you to you know, what we're here to talk about today to all birds.
1: Sure. So I, I started experimenting with the idea of a, of a business in, in the footwear space while I was still playing professionally. And uh, I used to get free gear, which was one of the, the best parts about being a professional athlete was all the free gear that you got. And the footwear was logoed and colorful and changed all the time. And as a sort of a, a minimalist in the way that I viewed the world, it was very, very hard to find simple. So I set out in the off-season – um, to try and work out how to, to solve that problem um, with no knowledge of footwear, no particular deep interest in that particular category, just the curiosity and a problem that was, as far as I could tell, my own. And and and, um, and I stumbled into this industry that I knew nothing about that was incredibly large, incredibly antiquated, old-fashioned in the way that it, it, uh, shoes were made and seemed to me um, full of opportunities for innovation and doing things differently. And so what were, you know, when you were conceiving the idea, apart from
0: the kind of minimalism in the on the design side, you know, anytime, you know, there's no shortage of shoes available in the world, what were the other things that you were thinking about when you were kind of imagining what the kind of unique
1: selling proposition would be for these Shoes. It became clear that the footwear industry um, had a, a, a prevailing low-cost mentality, tended to default to make things out of synthetics, mm-hmm. uh, had incredible margin pressure, mm-hmm. um, was all about cost. And I, you know, I, I saw an opportunity uh, to use other materials, and it was, it was something it seemed obvious to me that there was a range of other materials that hadn't been explored. And coming from New Zealand, the land of 25 million sheep, the idea of wool in footwear seemed like one of those obvious things that, you know, why had that not been done?
0: Why and, did that seem obvious? Because it seems so counterintuitive. I mean, the, I, you guys have now kind of popularized the idea of wool in in sneakers, but it was kind of a, a revolutionary idea, no?
1: It, did, it didn't seem that. It seemed like one of those obvious things. And I couldn't quite get it, you know, subsequently what I've, I've, I've realized to be my innovation alarm when you ask really simple questions about, about you know, Footwear sizing or or wool and shoes, and why is it not being done and you can 't really get a good answer then um, that was something worth pursuing and and I came back and, and and had one of those little sort of moments that that pushes you to the next stage of of, of trying to solve this question and I applied uh, you know uh, with a friend that was helping me at the time for a, an innovation grant from the wool industry it's a really important industry to yeah. New Zealand that had gone through this uh, incredibly um, tough period where the synthetic industry had sort of taken over and had become the low cost default option for just about everything and had done a poor job of marketing itself and so the idea that you might um, propose an innovation or a different idea um, got a little bit of funding when I was playing soccer and uh, and playing football and and knew nothing really about the space but it was a little bit of validation and over a couple of years this material for use in, in footwear was created for me and I um, subsequently went to the, the World Cup, realized my football career wasn't going to get any better and retired and actually came back to London for, for, for business school and graduate school and um, had uh, the beginnings of, of an entrepreneurial idea with a, a, a material innovation and a little bit of shoemaking knowledge, having mm. sort of fumbled with the idea of making shoes for a little while. Mm. So
0: how do you go about designing a shoe made of a material that no one has ever thought of using in designing a shoe? When you have zero
1: experience in designing a shoe, uh, you know very slowly, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, through iteration after iteration after iteration. And I, again, I I was very very lucky early on to meet uh, a really really talented um, Kiwi industrial designer called Jamie McClellan, who actually has spent a lot of his time in London working for uh, with Tom Tom Dixon. And um, okay. you know, I, I I met him and I, I told him about this idea, and he. Um, I just think he got it. And I think he saw that this category was so noisy and crowded and that there was an opportunity to distill, you know, if you were only going to make one sneaker and one one form and one silhouette, what would that look like? And I think he was intrigued by the design challenge and maybe the absurdity of (laughs) all the challenges you just outlined. And um, we started working together and he's now with us in San Francisco um, as our head of design and has been with us on this journey since sort of circa 2008. And we tried and we iterated and we learned and then we updated the material and we found an Italian mill outside of Milan to make the second version for us. And and then, um, you know, went through every sort of mistake you can imagine in pursuit of the singular form. And I think it was literally north of 150 versions of uh, to the point of driving people crazy. Mm-hmm.
0: And at what point in this journey, Tim, did you realize that, you know, sustainability was going to be a big part of kind of the value system of this product that you were building? Uh,
1: I, it's, it's, it's a really important question. I, I found myself in London after this career where I'd played for New Zealand that had been really meaningful for me and, um, you know, we'd, had been part of this, this team that had gone, you know, for the first time in 28 years to the World Cup. And, I, and all of a sudden I found myself in London – with um uh what many had kind of literally a professors uh kind of labeled an ill-conceived idea and strategy and plan uh wondering why exactly i was doing it i hadn't grown up on sheep farm as good as that would be for the story and i hadn't grown up with a you know as a trainer sneaker freaker that always imagined this is what i would do and i found myself sort of solving this problem unsure of why i was doing it and um my uh, my girlfriend now wife at the time um her uh Roommate from college, she's from New York, so her best friend from the States, um, introduced uh, me to my now co founder, uh, Joey, um, who's from San Francisco, uh, and said, Hey, um, you know, Tim's at a moment in time in this project. And and I met Joey and I, I flew to San Francisco on a whim. One uh, day in March, just on
0: the basis of the recommendations of your I'd respective met, partners,
1: I'd met Joey before. We'd seen each other at weddings. Um, yeah. He'd actually, uh, you know, I'd, do, I'd done an early crowdsourcing campaign coming out of um, uh, coming out of business school that had um, had some success, and he'd been a, a customer, and and so we were friendly, if not friends. And he was at a, you know. He was, I mean, he's a fascinating guy. He, he his career has been about sustainability and the environment and uh, is an engineer who had been working in the renewable material space and a biotech company that had been really successful in San Francisco. And um, he said, come see me. And we flew out um, and we spent this kind of weekend, this formative weekend together um, when I was literally sort of weighing up, maybe not doing this. And uh, we came out of the back of it realizing this wasn't actually about shoes and it wasn't about wool. This was actually about a revolution in sustainable manufacturing uh, and a category in, in fashion and footwear that had an enormous problem to solve. And I think we were hugely energized by that challenge and very, very quickly um, decided we were going to take a crack at it. So what was it that happened
0: that fateful weekend in San Francisco that helped you come? Because that, you know, that sounds like a seminal
1: moment it it was and um well the truth is um that that joey uh cooked me a lamb stew which was my first taste of his sense of humor and and um you know we got we got quite drunk and (laughs) um and i think we shared all the the things that um you know that we wanted to maybe get out of work and the idea of building a business and what that should mean and imagine all the things that sound a little bit silly when you say them out loud about something you might tell our grandkids about and and again a little bit cliched but very very true in this case you find the why of the business beyond just making and selling something that I'd certainly been grappling with and and um, you know th- leveraging you know Joey's c- commitment to this particular um, purpose and the urgency of of, of, of the challenge in his mind is in the importance of solving it, not kind of in a few years, but now mm-hmm. really was sort of just incredibly energizing. And it didn't get any easier from that point, but it's the moment you don't look back and then you dive in. Okay. So when you dove in, what did you do next? I came back and told my, uh, my girlfriend, now wife who loved London, that um, we were moving to the less fashionable capital of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were going to take a crack at us. And, and to her enormous credit, she didn't hesitate for a second and, we found ourselves on a plane and uh, working out of Joey's mother-in-law's place um, in San Francisco with his dog uh, Walter, mm-hmm. uh, having raised a little bit of money, um, with all the the, um, the hopes and fears that anyone who's ever done that has experiences. When when care for what you wish for, all, all of a sudden you have a little bit of money in the bank and um, the belief from some really, um, you know influential people that you could take a crack at this. Right.
0: So when you met with investors, let's talk a bit about that because it's funny, it's um, especially in the world where you're at in Silicon Valley, um, the understanding of fashion as an industry, kind of respect for like deep value-based businesses like, like the one you've built, you know, there's maybe different levels of appetite for that. Like, how did you go about... Pitching the business
1: so what was so we did it in New York,
0: okay <laughs> okay, well, that works yeah yeah,
1: um, Joey had been um, you know to to business school with Neil uh, Neil Blumenthal and from Warby David yeah. Gilboa and Jeff Rader, who just are yeah. just great guys and yeah. I mean if you stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of uh, people that had proven a different type of business model and how you might go after a, you know an old fashioned category with a different type of opera, uh, way of working that those were them and um, we got introduced to uh, a guy called Ben Lira, who, again, you may be of familiar course. with. Yeah. Who, you know, uh, who who took a chance on us, and I I think he he was interested in in that why deeply as smart as a man as, as he as he is. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, he runs a, a venture firm in New York City called Lira Hippow. His um father, I believe, uh, found the founded the Huffington Post. Yeah. And um He, you know, in a very short space of time was able to latch on to why we were doing this and what the opportunity was. And also I think he'd, you know, um, impressed, I I would like to think, or maybe a little concerned that we'd spent so long tinkering. There was a commitment to, I think, a a vision on the product that was more than we see a white space and we should build a direct consumer footwear brand. Mm that Actually, this started, you know, um, with a deep, deep problem. That that I felt and and a, and a deep deep purpose that Joey did and and I you know I think he was smart enough to see that um, if, even though we sat there with very few answers we were going to work really really hard to try and try and find them and he backed us.
0: As you've gone through those investment rounds, how did you choose investors along the way that that truly understood the mission and purpose of the company you building in the same way Ben Larrer did from yeah, the start?
1: We were lucky. And I think it was a combination of good fortune and instinct. And um, you know, so the next person we met was a guy called Dan Levitan who, who um, ran uh, Mavron, which is Howard Schultz's. He'd founded the fund mm-hmm. with, uh, from Starbucks, and he was a guy that came in and and deeply wanted to get to know us. And I remember, you know, everyone asks for references these these days, but it was easy in some ways to reference Joey. Um, but Dan asked for four or five people, and they were all in New Zealand and. Whoever calls, he called every single one of them and spoke to them for half an hour, or an hour about me and and uh, my background and what I did when things got tough. And he he did his diligence and and he wanted to know who we were in a way that was intense. But I think you 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 like this is a guy that is is asking I think the right questions. Um, he's sure he's interested in the in in, in the margin. But it was less marketing plan and it was more you know who are you and, and what are you going to do when this gets tough and and what do you want to build here what's this what's the reason you're doing it
0: what, and, what, where does your drive come from basically
1: yeah I mean you know mm-hmm. this is if if you're not doing it for something larger than yourself or for some deeper reason hmm. um, it's extraordinarily difficult to build a business
0: well that's what gets you through those tough moments right you go back to that sense of real purpose and mission
1: yeah and that ability to you know what i'm just gonna i'm gonna just grind here yeah and it would be probably easier and for the most part all logical and good advice would suggest i should stop doing this and i'm going to just keep on going just because you know because i want to and um and i think he was looking for a little bit of that and i think he found and joey and i two guys that are you know pretty competitive and and you know we're driven we were if we were going to put our names to this thing we you know we might not win, but we we were sure as hell we were going to give it a damn good go. Mm-hmm. And he was he was a big part of it. And then, you know, subsequently a, a c- couple of other guys. And and um, you know, so I I think you can tell a lot by the the types of questions people are asking. You mm-hmm. know, what are, what are they interested in? And you know, they should they should ask. There's a certain question they should ask about the fundamentals of the business and your business and your margin margin structure and your supply chain. But there's also there's questions about you and your brand and that I that I think are really important. Mm-hmm. So money's in the bank.
0: You and Joey have the why. You found your co-founder. How do you go about then figuring out if customers actually want what you're selling?
1: You know, we'd been so far down the road. And maybe, again, that's part of a little bit I'd like to think about what Ben saw is we were so far down the road with iterations and and and, and versions of this thing that, you know, we were, we were all in on the idea that, there was an opportunity with this design aesthetic and i you know i think it was validated i think on a macro level by this idea There was this huge shift in the way people were working that you know mm-hmm. our parents had gone to work from nine to five and there's a work uniform and a non-work uniform and that was completely been blown up which is mm-hmm. not a new idea but certainly felt like there was less solutions in the footwear space and yet a huge change in apparel so there was an opportunity there um and and then you know we just we just worked to tune this this product with a view that we were gonna we were we were gonna live or die by by the conviction that less was more in this particular space. And it's funny we raised a little bit of money and the, the investors who loved the idea of launching with one shoe hated it as soon as you evaluated the risk of what if that went wrong. Right. And the development times for footwear it's not like if you launch a shoe and people, people don't like it you kind of launch another one the next week. We we weren't traditionally in footwear you have an entire range and you plan to change it seasonally we we're going to launch with one shoe and it was going to be made from wool and um and that's what we committed to and i'm really proud of that because i think there would have been the easy so easy to kind of dilute that right and we stuck to it and and on the 1st of march 2016 all birds went live with joey and i and about four other people but still at that point you know,
0: how did you, did you have feedback from real customers or you just blindly went in with this? No,
1: I mean, enormous amounts of feedback. No one had warned. So talk
0: to me a bit about that in all of these iterations, you know, how did you, because you're, this is very risky.
1: Yeah, like I mean, calculated risks in yeah. the sense that we'd been working on this from two thousand eight to you know from to two thousand and sixteen. So, so there's a long incubation period. Sure, and we launched a product after business school, which uh, was a Kickstarter campaign that had taken the product out to the world, and in four days had kind of sold out, albeit okay. of a very small amount of shoes. So sure. that was really strong validation. That original model, largely yeah. Okay, um, not perfected, but largely aesthetically about the you know about the 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 creative vision that we had for the product and, and the idea of making the shoe out of wool so that was a really strong point of validation but you know interestingly enough you talk about the point of the, the 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 issue of feedback the you know so often people talk about listening to feedback but often what's um overlooked is the idea that you have to ignore a lot of it mm-hmm. and we'd had that many different industry experts come through from either the wool industry or the footwear industry and tell us stone cold with in some cases, decades of experience that this was never going to work, and you had you had to find a way to look past that. So the feedback thing is a kind of a, a you know, two sided coin, really, in, in both listening and then also working out when you need to ignore it. Yeah, and I think the feedback that's the
0: most important is the feedback from the customer. Like if you have if you're trying to revolutionise or disrupt a space, and you go to people who've operated in that space for decades, then chances are they have kind of you know blinders on in terms of what you know what good looks like. But if you're trying to do something different, you know, um, you you need to step outside those blinders a bit. The
1: the 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 ability to 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 throw the story out on Kickstarter as I did in, in in March of 2014 with a video that I shot very cheaply on a family friend's sheep farm was an enormous uh opportunity to sort of either succeed or fail and it very very quickly succeeded, and I think it suggested a global appetite for the product and the brand and the story and a category that um, you know the, uh, that had had never been exposed to the idea of woolen shoes. So it was novel, but it clearly resonated, and I think it was a it was a, it was certainly a, a very painful, difficult time to actually sort of work out how to do that and deliver it. But ultimately, yeah, if, if I look back on it, that was really important.
0: And as if that weren't complicated enough, you also decided to start. Or set up the company as a B Corp, is that right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about because a lot of people don't even know about sure. this category of company. Like what what does that actually require when you're setting up the business, and how do you think that's changed the way you and your team and your investors think about the company?
1: You know, look, it, it was it was an opportunity to enshrine the values of our commitment to the environment and the governance of the company, and so that we had. Um, a responsibility not just to deliver profit to our shareholders but uh one of our one of our uh, stakeholders was the environment and so we literally have you know a, a legal responsibility um to to do the right thing by that um by that stakeholder effectively and it was powerful and so we did that from the beginning and really got no pushback from from any investors in many ways it was so aligned with our purpose that there was no question um, certainly not from Ben. And then the, there was the B Corp certification, which is on a, a separate but sort of related thing, where every two years you you um, you get a certification, a score out of two hundred, um, and we became B Corp certified from the beginning, and it was just another opportunity to, to plant a flag and say what type of business we want it to be and certainly in the in America less so I think in the in the UK but it's become a, this emerging trend and the, it's really quite remarkable the number of people straight out of college who are searching for their job for their, their first job who are you know won't work for anything other than a B Corp and I think there's you know multiple thousand companies now in the states that are that um, that are, are registered B Corps and I, I see no you know no signs of that slowing down. This podcast is delivered by DHL. As the logistics partner of many of fashion's most prestigious businesses, from billion-dollar brands to emerging designers and innovative SMEs, DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL provides tailored and comprehensive Go Green logistics and business solutions that enable fashion businesses to grow sustainably as they expand domestically and into new international markets. For more information about DHL and how it can help your business increase transparency around your environmental impact, minimise logistics-related emissions and offset what cannot be avoided, visit logistics.dhl.
0: So take us to the moment where you okay, hey, you've done the Kickstarter campaign, you have a bit of intel from customers that this is gonna work, you raised the money, got the B Corp status set up, and then it's the day of the launch. You know, what were you what was going through your
1: head that morning when you were like putting everything up? Uh you know, I think you're so busy. You you know, you just you kind of you just it just happened. And and it happened in very, very quickly this thing just took off okay. and there wasn't really time. But what, what was, what I remember, uh, very early on, you know, a few months in when we, uh, we'd had a, a business plan that I remember that we wrote that even in the process of getting, raising a little bit of money, people had largely laughed at. And we blew through that in the first couple of months. And on the surface, everything was, was fantastic. And, and Joey and I had our kind of first real low moment as co-founders which was is funny because sometimes when things are going as on the outside so well you know you realize that gosh this stuff's hard you're in this incredibly intense situation intense relationship with this person and you're trying to lead this growing business and you don't quite know uh how it's going to go and then it goes really well and then and then you have a kind of a your first big kind of fight over it which i remember being really difficult but actually quite formative
0: what did you fight about
1: You know we were running the business as co-ceos and we have very complementary skill sets but it was you know I think it was about um you know it was about who who did what and how and just really simple stuff and I think it was an opportunity just to reset you know we were we were we prided ourselves on kind of overlapping and speaking to each other's side and arguing and disagreeing and I don't think we quite yet found a mechanism for just releasing that on a regular cadence to sort of just make that not a negative thing, but a really healthy thing. And so we just had one of those like little tiffs. Did you sit together? Like how? We still do. We literally look at each other like I'm looking at you right now. And we have done for four years and we're two very different folks. He's an engineer. I'm a designer. He's had this, you know. Uh, extensive business career. This is largely my first job. And, you know, we're trying to work out how to maximize each other's potential and and where to push and where to leave alone. And like any intense relationship, that, that is not always a straight line. It's
0: not a straight line, especially for the people working for you, because if they don't understand, you know, what does Tim do? What does Joey do? Like, you know, what's their... What their, What are their responsibilities, and who do I go for, and who's in charge? And it's really confusing.
1: Totally, and you know, um, yeah, you know, you know this. It's yeah. and it's really hard. I mean, I, I, think having done it a little bit myself, I've been. I don't think there's any other way than to do it with a co-founder. It's an incredibly lonely thing, whether you're managing no people or a hundred people or three hundred people. And um, you know, we found a way, and I think maybe from that moment. Uh, if I look back on it, committed to the idea that we can go further together than we can individually. And this was about, um, protecting the organization from a lot of that disagreement, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. And that the idea that there was no singular person in charge could be a strength if it was cultivated and managed. And that the idea of debate and discussion was something that could make us stronger if if we worked out how to manage that carefully. And we invested in that. And, um, we look at things very, very differently, and have found a way to make that work. And um, I feel very, very proud of that partnership because, gosh, it's 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 hard. You know, it gets really tested. I guess we had the one we promised our wives that we were not going to uh, fall out to the extent that it damaged their friendship. So that was a good axe hanging over the, yeah. over the situation. Yeah. So
0: the initial. Um, signs from the market was that this thing was going to work and then the next
1: stage of building a business is then scaling it. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? That's the thing. Um, we were largely profitable from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. But we, we hit our sales targets and our, our revenue plan a few months in, um, you know, and, and it exploded. And I th- I think this is where San Francisco actually becomes interesting as a, as a point of discussion, because I think It's a place there where if you're not imagining this thing as being wildly successful, then you're not in the running. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we'd architected a supply chain that could have real impact, um, not just because that could build a big business, but because we knew we needed to build a big business to have the type of impact we wanted with the materials that we were going to use. Um, And we also, we hired accordingly. We, you know, the, the ability to access talent in that particular part of the world was enormous and immense and it's competitive, but we we able to, from the beginning, um, hire really, really experienced people that we could learn from, and then allow them to build out their team. So that was a big focus of the of the early stages. And and you know, right out of the gate, we sold one shoe for the first fourteen months. And just before our second birthday, and I think we had two styles at that point, we we sold a million pairs of shoes. Um, wow! And we'd never discounted a uh, a pair. And um, it was this sort of ability to stay incredibly focused. Well, I mean. Literally with one style, but also imagine success and imagine that scale and backing yourself that it was all going to work out. And the juxtaposition of those two ideas was was a little bit New Zealand America cultural, a little bit Joey Tim differences, but was really really important and focus and, and and vision for the future.
0: Yeah, I mean sometimes I think when people talk about stories like All Birds, it's not apparent to everyone how hard it is to scale. Like as you were as you were scaling, I mean you got to a million shoes, but like. You know, talk to us a little bit about you know what that means practically speaking from a talent perspective and from a even from a supply chains perspective like going from you know i don't know what it was that you sold at the beginning but going up to a million pairs of shoes that's a lot
1: yeah very quickly i mean I think we we were powered by this naivety that we didn't know what we were doing and we literally were coming into this category and uh, not knowing about footwear and supply chains and then and 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 very quickly realized that actually we need to get some people at least a few people in here that really understand this category because making this product is enormously difficult um you know so there was and then where actually is it a benefit to maintain that outsider status so how do we do that and very quickly realized that um the brand was going to be critical to the success of you know the the the, of 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 the story and, and and invested in a really um you know, wonderful uh, brand marketer, Julie Channing, who we, we, who came from Levi's and Nest and really understood the intricacies of how you protect a brand and nurture that story and worry about and think about every single detail. Um, every single customer contact point matters. And so um, that was a really important um, point. And, and then we just, we slowly added that talent, um, always not with where we were, but where we imagined we could be in mind. And I think that helped us, um, you know, hire really, really experienced people and and sort of say, hey, um, we don't want to tell you what to do. We want you to come and join our team. We want to learn from you, and mm-hmm. we want to give you an opportunity to do this in the right way. Um, let's build a really successful business, but let's do it um, with the idea that there is a, we're on the, the cusp of a, of a revolution in the way things are made, that sustainability is the problem of our generation, and that we need to act urgently now to find a solution to... Um, to this within the footwear and fashion industries. And I think it was – this is – the pitch is sort of like this is going to be way harder than what you're doing and we're probably going to pay you less. Um, But this this matters and come help us out.
0: Mm. The other thing that a lot of direct-to-consumer businesses like yours face in the beginning and throughout the life of the business actually is just acquiring customers. So you can have like a really beautiful brand and a well-designed product. But how did you – and Joey,
1: think about customer acquisition. You know, we hadn't really all that much. Okay. Um, you know, the, it's it's funny that it's, it's never been easier to launch a brand, um, and in some ways, the um, the barrier to entry have never been lower, and it's never been more competitive. And we were we were focused so deeply on this product, um, and you know, l- l- fortunately, the product connected, and there was this sort of viral word of mouth sharing that really propelled the brand. We could never have built it in the way we did. By buying into it, and and then we, you know, we, we spent a lot of time telling our story, and PR became a really important part of, of building the brand and of telling people why this mattered and why this, you know, this brand was very very small and had done little, but had a big vision, and this is why it fitted in, fit into the world that we lived in and why it was important, and it was beyond, you know, just making and selling, and and that, you know, that was helpful too, and and um, you know, but but largely friends told friends and families told families and they enjoyed this product experience. And I think they bought into what we were trying to do and they backed us. But some of those friends, Tim, were like really important
0: people, right? And they're famous people. And I read somewhere that uh, one of the pivotal moments or a moment was when Leonardo DiCaprio tweeted out that he'd invested in your business. And I don't know how many millions of followers or fans he has and he's such a proponent of thinking about our environment and our you know it's such a natural fit right so it's, it's a real endorsement but there's all of these famous people wearing
1: your shoes like how did how did they discover them and i mean interestingly leo just on on the environment he yeah. started thinking about that in the early 90s yeah. long before this became the issue that it is currently and um so we got introduced to him through a friend of a friend and uh, he he tried the product and Loved it and we went down and saw him and we just I just found this we found this guy who's just insanely curious about how we had done this and why we'd done it and and um and and so that became a really neat thing that you could never have imagined. Uh, and then um, Emma Watson stylist I remember reached out in the early days and wanted a pair and, and she's obviously similarly sort of uh, aligned with our purpose. And, you know, Matthew McConaughey um, uh, wore the shoes because Woody Harrelson told them that they were great. Apparently, and, Matthew McConaughey
0: has three pairs, <laughs> at least according to analysis I saw on the internet.
1: Analysis. There we go. Yeah. You've done your research. And then, you know, Barack Obama was wearing them courtside at Duke North Carolina basketball game. And, In um, Toronto. Yeah. It's so it's all of these things have been. That's crazy. That's wild. I mean, the the, the best one was sort of the New Zealand prime minister. Um, Jacinda Ardern. Jacinda Ardern. Yeah. So Mom rang me one day and she said it doesn't matter what happens from now you've made it because she met the Australian Prime Minister, and uh, that's a big meeting when yeah, and uh, she gifted him a pair of wool birds and oh wow he already he already had a pair so, so was, this
0: this kind of word of mouth and all of these really kind of well known people who are connected to your that mission that purpose that you guys spent so much time
1: you know thinking about at the beginning, yeah maybe or, or maybe they just had a product that they like to wear and I, yeah. know, I think it's really important yeah. that um you know people buy great products then by sustainable products. Yeah. And I think that had been an insight and a foundational belief for us that we were going to never sacrifice on the customer experience um, to insert a sustainable product. We were going to challenge ourselves to make the great experience that we wanted and then make that as sustainably as possible. And I think that's a really important point um, when it comes to the topic of sustainability, which is a complicated um, and multi-layered one that that it's not what people buy. In fact in many ways some of the early sort of insights for us was that when people hear sustainable they assume that it's more expensive and less good. And so it actually it gets in the way of mm-hmm. people being attracted to the problem that you're trying to really solve. So we tried to talk less about that in the beginning and more about the design and the comfort. Mm. So let's fast forward to the business today. You know, we're now a team of of north of 300 people in in um, San Francisco with offices in Shanghai and here in in London and uh, you know, a retail presence that's growing uh, really quickly, which we're excited about, and just I think the foundation of of, of a big opportunity, and it's right. up to us to take advantage of that. There's certainly, a long, long way to go, but I, the exciting thing is we just feels like we're just starting to 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 get going.
0: And the Chinese market entry, you know, with this team based in Shanghai, that's a that's a big bold move too, right? Because, um, you know, having spent a bit of time there you know, that market is wired completely differently. The whole system of everything there is different. So what what, what led you to decide to enter that market yeah. so soon in your trajectory? Uh,
1: yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. And look, we're three months in, so it's very, very early. But I mean, traditionally, you might have, if you've gone to China, you might do it much, much later. Yeah. Um, um, when you're much more established as a business. And you most likely would do it with a joint venture or some sort of wholesale third-party partnership. And we decided... That it was a different moment in time, and I think what's been clear from the beginning of the first Kickstarter days, and of having sort of had an idea that was in Auckland and in London, and now San Francisco, and now with uh, offices in Shanghai, is that there's a there's a global customer, a young global customer that um, all cares about the same thing, that is starting to demand to know the provenance of the things that they wear and buy, and that customer's the same as the same empathy and urgency for the environmental impending environmental crisis uh, wherever they live. And um, so the idea of building a global brand, I think, is something that we'd always imagined. And we thought that there was a, a great opportunity to do it now. And, and a couple of reasons fast-tracked it. Um, one, we, we because of all those, those trends and the advancements in technologies, there was an opportunity not to plug and play, into those markets, but to go in early and actually learn, with a view that many of the learnings from the retail space could be brought back to the larger American market. Mm-hmm. And then to, to, to your earlier question, we hired um, a guy called Eric Haskell, who had um, had built uh, Under Armour's business in China um, from nothing to a lot, and um, he he joined us, and it was another opportunity to to learn from a guy. Um, you know, that took a big risk to come and join our team. And um, he was a big part of it too. Okay.
0: So this is the part of the conversation where, and you've been peppering bits of advice and lesson all the way through, but, you know, I'd, you know, I'd love for you to just take stock a bit. I mean, I know the company is only like four years old, right? So there's still a long way to go. But as you, as you think back, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier um, was that you were profitable from the beginning. So for an entrepreneur who's trying to, to think that way, which is slightly counterintuitive to a way to the way a lot of new companies are built these days. That you know, that you, the assumption is you you have to lose money first and then you can make money. How how did
1: you build profitability into the business from the beginning? Just just discipline, discipline and focus. We were focused on the products that we made, and we were focused on how we made them. And um, we realized that if we were profitable, we had a better chance to be successful. And um, we were really disciplined in the way that we hired we wouldn't, you know, add someone until it kind of broke. And, um, you know, I think uh, San Francisco is littered with success stories, but also with uh, tales of caution of people that have got over their skis and um, and uh, and lost sight of the, the steps you need to go, the building blocks you need to, to take. And uh, we tried to be really, really careful. And fortunately, we we're able to do that with enormous discipline and focus. And it just gave us the ability to uh, raise money when we needed to when there was a great reason, whether it be to invest in our first you know uh, retail stores or mm-hmm. to double down on our innovation approach or to launch China um, with a view that um, there was always there was there was a compelling reason to go to the market and we 've been really quite disciplined in the way we 've raised money and i think it's it 's been helpful for us How much money have you raised thus far seventy odd million dollars um, but you know in in four rounds um, but relative to a lot of our, um, you know, uh, other, other brands and, um, you know, certainly where we come from, it's still an enormous amount of money, don't get me wrong. Um, but we've been very, very careful with that, and really proud of that. And I think it's given us options. Is there something you wished someone had told you at the beginning of this journey
0: that you know now that you think other entrepreneurs who might be, you know, thinking about creating their own business should
1: know? Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's probably the, the, the biggest piece of advice is probably advice I give myself f- from my previous journey in, in the context of professional sports. Like, that was similar in terms of its arc. Um, struggled to find a club. St- struggled to find a, a way to play professionally. Uh, no one's wanting to kind of be your friend. And then all of a sudden you go to the World Cup and it flips and it looks like it's an overnight success and, and then everyone's there to want to hang out with you. And, um, and you know, I, I, I think um i was i was pretty hard on myself through that journey and when uh when i lost i really felt that and um and i was determined this time around that i was going to i was going to sort of sail somewhere through the middle and when i won that would you know that be fine and when i lost that would be fine and somehow it's... somehow find a way to enjoy it enjoy the ups and the downs which i had not done a good job of when i was when i was playing and and that was the promise i made to myself so Lots of things, but you know, sometimes when you, you know, like when Joey and I had our big first b- big uh, Barney, sometimes when you're winning, you're actually losing, and sometimes when you're losing, you're winning, and it's so that the, the sweet spot is just to find a way to stay stay in the middle and and just commit to the, the the powerful idea of getting a little bit better every day, just a little bit better every day, and I think that comes from my sporting experience mm. too. Not try and knock it out of the park or be too reactive or look for that silver bullet, but just focus on on a little bit of improvement and it compounds and it can make a big difference.
0: Hmm. It's kind of a Buddhist philosophy you have.
1: It's a footballing philosophy. So I'll, um, if you, yeah, sure. If it sounds, I, uh, well, if it sounds deeper than that, um, yeah, I'll no, take I it.
0: mean, it's basically, there's so many ups and downs in an entrepreneurial journey, especially one with not just an ambitious business vision, but an ambitious purpose vision um, that you have to be able to get through the ups and downs and kind of remain Equanimous, which is what I learned in my meditation practice. But you know, through whatever, through whatever you face,
1: I, I, I think I lo- learned a lot about leadership from sport. And some of the, the the folks I played sport with, many of whom are still great friends, it was sort of you'd lose four nil, you'd play horribly, poorly, and then they were there at training on Monday, laughing like it never happened, and they had the sort of a mind of a goldfish and the ability to kind of go back to work, knowing that um, you know that it was about process and the results would come if you if you focused on that and. That's been a lesson, and you know you can get caught up sometimes in, in in early success or early failures. But this is when you know to build a, a company. It's it, it's this is a marathon, not a sprint, and you you really need to have that long term view so you don't make silly short term decisions. As the the whims of of startup life can take you off track really easily.
0: Hmm. Well, Tim, that's been absolutely fascinating and such an incredible story. And, you know, it's amazing. It's just the beginning. So I really look forward to seeing how this all develops. Thank you for sharing your story of DRIVE with
1: us. I hope so. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to DRIVE, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of sustainable entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.